Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Settling in, folks. That's that's what that's why we're having a delay here, and uh, and he's got a suspense. and he's got a high chair. How about that? How about this for a look, folks? I know that this is just radio, but but this is just like a, a flashback to his youth. He gets to sit in a high chair. It's like Game of Thrones in there. <laughs> you know, Mr. Binko, it is always good. Spend time with you on a Sunday morning, and uh, may I say to you, Mink? Yeah. As well as saying to WFAN, happy anniversary. Thank you very much. Of course, the official anniversary of WFAN literally on the first of July. And Mink, are you having all kinds of problems with headphones? You, you literally are part of the fabric of this very radio station. I have learned more about the history of WFAN and about your personal history and professional history. I am absolutely fascinated, fascinated, listening to the multi-parts of the John Minko interview on the Evan Roberts podcast. I must say this is must-listening for John Minko fans. Must listening. That's radio.com, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Minko, we have a very busy show today, and you'll be keeping us up to date on happenings in the sporting world. I'm very pleased to say that we have in studio with us uh, a guest who has a perspective to bring to the discussion. We're going to be talking about a number of things uh, with her, Jennifer Boer Cuevas is a licensed clinical social worker. She's a disaster mental health professional, and she is in private practice on Long Island. She also advocates, um, and we're going to talk with her about a number of different things. She also has the perspective of um, being a mom of a young man who is on the autism spectrum uh, as well, and we'll get some of her um, thoughts in that area too. 
First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. Um, one of the things that I wanted to uh, touch upon in the discussion with you today is to go to, as we talked a little bit before we came over to the studio here, you know, I introduce you and talk about um, working your work as a disaster mental health professional, okay? That's quite a mouthful as a, as mm-hmm. a title. The natural thought is, what does that really encompass? What is that? A disaster mental health worker is um, somebody who, um, well, I, I am on staff with the Red Cross, mm-hmm. and what we do on a regional and national level is we administer psychological first aid to people who have just experienced a disaster, a man-made disaster, such as a mass shooting, a school shooting, a, um, a fire, um, and, and as well uh, natural disasters, such as weather events, tornadoes, hurricanes on the grander scale. And what we do is we administer psychological first aid, usually within minutes to hours after the event has happened. And we try to help people tap into their resiliency uh, reserves um, and help them to, uh, we help them to recenter after the disaster and triage what they need to do in the here and now to sort of start recovering from what has occurred. Okay, so it's in a way, and I don't want to oversimplify what you're doing, um, it's kind of like putting the event, the trauma, in perspective. Is that a way of looking at how you handle it, kind of the work that you're doing? Well, what it is, usually the sorts of um, traumas that I respond to are life-changing mm-hmm. sorts of disasters. And, but people, even in the midst of disaster, there are still things that you need to do if you have children, if you have people, if you have dependents, if you have people that count on you. So we are there to help people sort of... Um, reconnect with that the the danger is behind them they are safe and that it is now time for us to help you figure out what you need to do to now start to recover from this disaster and with the individuals that you're working with is it more adults more children or just what well my specialty has always been working with children Um, I've always loved, loved working with children. So in my work in disaster, um, I I tend to be assigned to work with the children who are survivors of disaster and help them um, uh, recenter, help them reconnect with their parents under these new circumstances, help them tap into their own resiliency, and, and again, the goal is always helping them to get on the track to uh, recover, to start to recover. 
And sometimes that is not necessarily the emotional um, recovery, but more so the physical recovery. Um, if somebody has just lost their home, we need to get them shelter. We need to um, get them medicine. We need to get them food, care, whatever they need at that, at that immediate time. So we are there to help them pull those pieces together. Is it tricky, um, and tricky may be the wrong word to use, but delicate in terms of working with children? It is. It really is. Um, I, but I have to say, children are very resilient. Mm. I've seen children, uh, you know, just hours after a trauma, and if you make them feel safe and make them feel that the danger is behind them, they can sort of move forward. And I will say that the more confident that they see their parents that forward is the direction that they will go and that they will be okay. They will follow the lead of their parents. Children are very resilient. Mm. And in that re reconnection with the parents mm -hmm. that you mentioned earlier, um, is that also something that's um, kind of tricky to sort of navigate that? It is because naturally after a disaster or when, you know, if in the event of a fire and people realize they've just lost everything, mm -hmm. um, parents are panicked, you know, as human beings would. Right. They're having a human right. reaction to the that's proportionate to the situation. Um, so it's it's our job as disaster mental health workers to help parents get through that reaction, but then be able to recenter and then come to where they need to be for their children. Because as I said before, the children will follow suit. So if they feel that they're that everything is going to be okay from their parents, they will they will follow suit and believe that. Is this a challenging aspect of the field to work in for you as a professional? Absolutely. With children, yeah. Children um, children need they need to be advocated for. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I've seen many children who are resilient and who are are strong, and I, I've seen children that function better than some adults, <laughs> but they're still children, and um, it, it makes all the difference. When you can help a child through a bad experience, I believe that that sort of sets the tone for maybe how they will will cope in the future. And with that child, when they've been through a disaster, is there kind of an, a need for them? Or how do they go about, I guess, letting go of the trauma that they may have suffered? It, it's a process. Um, I can tell you that through the disaster mental health work that we do, we 
again, try to make them feel as safe as possible. And then when we get to the shelter or when we get to the family assistance centers, we get the kids involved in a game. We start games. We start doing you know, sorts of uh, dis- activities that will distract them. Mm-hmm. We sort of try to get them to feel a little bit of normalcy again. And with reminders and reassurances, uh, with, you know, certainly through those hours that they are going to be okay. And um, so giving them a little bit of normalcy can go a long way with them. The reason I ask that question is I think as adults, sometimes we have issues where we're hanging on to aspects of trauma for years. And the reason why I say that is as I'm sitting here talking with you today, and we were talking in the hour before we came into the studio here, I'm also very cognizant of the fact that literally where we are in lower Manhattan, we're basically a mile, almost exactly a mile from ground zero. Mm -hmm. All right. And I think of this literally every time that I come to this building, literally every time. And I'll say something that um, I've I've kind of alluded to and touched upon before on the air here. Um, Generally speaking, I go to the ground zero site multiple times a year, sometimes um, once every month, Mm -hmm. sometimes once every couple of months. And it's part of my way of, for lack of a better term, processing some of the trauma associated with that. Because I think as adults that sometimes we can be hanging on to trauma. And you hear people talk about trauma from their childhood, and and they're adults. But yet children, I would assume, in many cases, because they may not have some of those walls that we set up as adults and have built up, they may have a better time or perhaps an easier time in handling trauma and kind of taking those steps to recovery uh, as well. People are, people I believe have their, um, their own sort of genetic blueprint of how they cope with stress or cope with traumatic events and um, sometimes that can be the deciding factor as to how well. I'm sorry, you, you, you were saying, I'm sorry. Sometimes that can be the deciding factor um, as to how well people will do with trauma. But with the little ones, if we can get in there right away and, and let them know that they are safe and that they can move forward from the situation... I think that they have a good chance of of doing that. So we go back to that word that you used, and you used this when we were talking before we came over here to the studio, the idea of safety, Mm -hmm. okay? Because we very often hear that um, phrase used, and I mean, it seems like common sense that that would be part of the approach of creating a safe environment, Mm -hmm. uh, one where someone can feel free to express themselves and also to realize that yes, we are on a path toward something that is more normal, more part of the routine uh, of 
moving forward and of recovery and the idea that even that recovery is a possibility. Absolutely. Uh, And time really means a lot. Interesting discussion. We really have just started it. We're also going to get into an interesting talk in the next part of our discussion um, about a story um, that touches upon an aspect of autism and um, interesting story that Jennifer is going to share with us. We're talking on our program with Jennifer Bohr Cuevas. Uh, She is in studio with us. Um, I didn't mention this earlier. You know, you want to join us in the discussion, you can. Our number here at The Fan is 877-337-6666. That's our phone number. 620 is our time. Oh, look who has wandered back into the studio here. And look who's still in the high chair. (laughs) You know... I got to tell you, Mink, yeah. this is, it's kind of strange being up in the air here like this, but I'll say this to you. There's an aspect of this that I kind of like. <laughs> that may say an awful lot about me. <laughs> yes, Mink just gives me that response. That says enough right there. Perfect. Mr. Minko has our 2020 sports up. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Mr. Binko will keep us up to date on happenings in the sporting world, as he does in the fine form. We are in a discussion with an interesting guest who is in studio with us. Jennifer Boer Cuevas is a licensed clinical social worker and a disaster mental health professional. Uh, she is talking with us on our program. We've uh, touched upon... Um, couple things in the beginning of our discussion, but I want to get into talking about um, some of the work that you've done with uh, children with uh, autism. At the beginning of our discussion, I mentioned the fact that you are uh, a mom of a young man uh, who uh, has autism. And also we want to talk about an interesting uh, story that I want you to share with our listening audience. But let's talk first as this perspective that you have coming to this discussion today. Um, Your son is 10, is that right? He's 10. His name is Jesse. What's Jesse like? Jesse is, he's incredible. Um, What a setup that was. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse is the best thing I ever did. Um, He, Jesse is probably um, what we would formally call uh, pervasive developmental disorder, which is a little bit of a lower functioning sort of autism. Um, He struggles with communicating and with social skills. Um, He has a lot of anxiety. So that's something that we we struggle with a lot. Um, But he is also the most loving and the most interesting and funny um, little boy. Sometimes, <laughs> I always laugh that sometimes he is uh, a 10-year-old who will talk like a 10-year-old, but then at times he's this old soul who sounds like an 80-year-old man. You know, there are times he'll say to me uh, when I'm leaving for work, farewell, mother, I'll see you later. What 10-year-old boy says that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's just, he's my, he's my angel. And in 
understanding um, children with autism. I mean, where are we, I guess, as, um, as a society when it comes to understanding what it's like for kids with autism? And I ask that from the standpoint of the society, and I want to get into, because this ties perfectly into the story with Michael, how the schools really understand and handle this. And I know you're an advocate. That's why I'm asking you the question. Yes. Yes, I am. Um, in my, I have a private practice, and with most of my patients, I, I treat um, predominantly kids on the spectrum with autistic disorder. Um, I attend their uh, public school committee on special ed meetings or any meetings that have to do with uh, the child's um, academic development. I have to say that I do think that as a society, we have come a long way, but we still have ways to go. There is the, what I call the pop psychology version of autism, and then there are the, the nuances of autism. I, in my experience, I don't believe that our New York public school system is as trained as they could be in the nuances of autism. And I believe that they operate more from the pop psychology framework of, of autism. Can you explain perhaps what you mean by that? You used the phrase a couple of times, pop psychology. Well, in pop psychology, we, we know that Autism is a developmental disorder that affects the way a person communicates and socializes and that it can present itself in a variety of ways ranging from mild to uh, severe. Mm -hmm. um, but it's and, – and with the lower functioning kiddos that have autism, we I think society is good at sort of knowing – how to navigate those children. But it's the children with higher functioning levels of autism that there is still a lot to be learned um, because these kiddos tend to present uh, in a neurotypical way and at times present with their autism. It depends on the situation. So um, it's the nuances of autism that if we were better trained in those, uh, that I think that th these kids would, um, uh, would get the best, um, would get the best education and, and be handled in the best way when it comes to any sort of disciplinary action. All right, let's do the story of, of Michael, because I think this is something that we'll connect with. A lot of the folks who are listening to us, some people may even have heard some aspects of the story, too. Michael. Michael D. He is one of my patients, and he attended um, Elwood School District on Long Island. Michael is very high-functioning. Um, he is... Um, 
his social skills are are really good. He is short of being a genius. Um, he is he's just such a great kid. But his cross to bear is his anxiety, and Michael has um, an overactive fight or flight response, and. What that causes him to do when that fight or flight response is triggered is it causes him to to bolt or elope, and that is really a very common behavior of people with autism, of the lower functioning kiddos and the higher functioning kiddos. Um, so with Michael, uh, a week before he was to. Um, celebrate the uh, moving up activities from his eighth. He, he, Michael was in eighth grade, and he had a, uh, a full schedule of moving up activities, picnics and yearbook signings, um, uh, class trips, uh, uh, graduation rehearsals, all sorts of wonderful things planned to celebrate the moving up. Well, on the a couple of days before school was over, he was his fight or flight response was triggered by a staff member who really didn't know Michael who approached him in the library and he became so upset in not knowing who this individual was and and feeling attacked by them verbally attacked by them that his fight or flight response caused him to bolt from the school he ran home in a panic attack, having crossed several busy roads. And when he got home, his mother thought it would be best to try to get him to work through those feelings. So she took him back to the school. When he arrived back at school, Michael was buzzed in and security realized that they didn't even know he was missing. So from the time that Michael ran from school to the time it was discovered he was missing, there was about an hour that had passed. And so this was extremely concerning. And when the administration then met Michael uh, at the door and then called his mother in, they immediately said that he would now need to be suspended for five days and that he would not be able to attend any of the moving up activities that all eighth graders do. This was cruel. This was cruel. So what can you do in a situation like that where you're hearing this is the point of view, this is the approach from the school district, school administration? Is there an appeal? Is there lobbying, advocating that can be done? Well, in Michael's situation, what we try to do, myself and Michael's parents, Michael's mother happens to be an attorney. Um, we, Michael's parents had reached out to the administration to try to negotiate down the consequences, and they sort of doubled down on what, the consequences were and said that they were not going to be um, they were they were not going to be reducing those consequences um, so in my belief 
if they had been better trained in the nuances of autism, they would have been able to recognize that Michael having eloped from the school was a manifestation of his style of autism. The school viewed it as a violation in their code of conduct. It was not. And Michael's situation is not the first time that I've seen this mistake made where a child, an autistic kiddo's behavior is mistaken for a violation of a coding conduct. It's damaging, you know, it, it was cruel. It was a cruel punishment. And um, I do believe that the administration, all, and this is not just Elwood School District, this is to all the public schools, if the administration and all their underlings would be trained in the nuances of autism, they would be, I think they would do a much better and fair job at disciplining our kids. I mean, you're not, as I hear this and as I understand it, you know, you're not asking for something outrageous, it sounds like. You're really just asking for some steps to be taken in the area of training that I guess many people probably would have assumed would be part of the normal training anyway. I mean, shouldn't this really be? I do believe that the administration does get training, but I, I don't believe that they get the intensity of training that it, it sure looks like they require. And I also want to point out that if we look at the sort of personalities that gear towards becoming administrators or, or people in managerial positions, especially in the school systems, these are personalities that are not... Um, it doesn't come naturally to them to understand human behavior or psychology um, and everything that falls under that. So the very people that are making academic decisions and that are um, are making disciplinary decisions for kids on the spectrum are not necessarily those who who are open to understanding the nuances of autism. So I think they have to work that much harder to understand and to accept the training so that they can make more um, fair judgments and decisions based on these children. Well, when, and and you've gone to a lot of school districts um, I sure have. What has that experience been like? I mean, what kind of reception have you gotten? It's very fr frustrating. Schools, I find that public school systems are very much, um, they're, they're a very closed system. I don't believe they're as open to receiving outside um, training or counsel on how to work with the emotional and social health of their students. I believe that they, that the school districts believe they have 
all the professionals that they need under one roof, the roof of their school district, to render all of these services. And, and that's not the case. Um, I mean, there are some very good clinicians that work for the school districts, but there are also some clinicians that I find step outside of their scope of practice in, in trying to work with kids on the spectrum. Um, you know, for example, psychologists who are trained at the master's level really do or should be doing a lot more on the testing, psychological testing um, realm. And I find that they tend to step out of their scope of practice in trying to offer, you know, what they think is a diagnostic or a prognosis for a child. So I do see a lot of um, school staff stepping out of their scope of practice to render opinions on our autistic kids. Hold that thought. We're going to come back and talk more with you. Jennifer Bourquavis is talking with us on our program on the fan. All righty, Mr. Binko. Thank you. We're in discussion with Jennifer Bourquavis on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Solter. What I said we would do as well is to try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. You want to join us in our discussion um, 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan. And I'll tell you what, let's start on the phone. Let's go to, uh, Lenny in Brooklyn. Lenny, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Okay. Good morning. I think I hear some part of the, um, her, her, pro, uh, her story that because of the kid, Michael running away, or because of a, one of the teachers or some administrator in the library, did they take that into consideration? Uh, actually, we missed part of what you just said. Can you repeat your question? Okay. My question is, she said in her summing up of Michael running away, Michael ran away because of the, the pupil, another pupil, the um, administrator or somebody in the library caused him to run away and run to home, and then they brought him back. I think that's what I, I got. Is that so? Did they take that into consideration? Okay, you want to know if they took that into consideration. All right. Yeah. Um, actually, Jennifer, your microphone is there. There we go. Okay. Good morning. Thank you. That was a great question. Um, yes, they they took it into consideration um, that if he, I guess, actually, you know what? I want to take that back. Um, the the fact that he was able to come back to school, I think, then put forth a question of, well, how anxious could he really be? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but at the end of the day, no, it didn't matter. They were still going to render the the consequences that they did. Mm. And what exactly has happened in his case to this point? Well, actually, I'm not really at liberty to say at this time, but we are working on a uh, sort of settlement that I do believe will um, be be justice. So maybe at a later time, I could com could come back and and share that with you. And something that's um, all parties would be agreeable to. That's what's kind of is 
what you're alluding to is, is, is <laughs> yes. on the table. Okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> Had a feeling there might be some sort of thing along that line that would be uh, come up in discussion. I mean, when you talk about advocating or um, trying to advocate for children who are on the autism spectrum, um, is it something where in your work as an advocate, in your work as someone in the therapy or mental health field, and also in your role as a mom, is it frustrating? It's extremely frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. Um, it It is... Um, but it will always need to be done. I do believe that people that do have autism will always need a uh, somebody to advocate for them. And I do believe in teaching these guys how to advocate for themselves as well. Because the bottom line is people, we're not always surrounded by people who are going to understand the nuances of their autism. You know, there's a saying uh, about snowflakes. They say if, um, that there's no one snowflake that is alike. And I, I often say that about my autistic kiddos. If you show me one child with autism, you've only shown me one child with autism. There is no one autistic child that is like another. So they, they, it is very frustrating, especially with the school districts, because I do believe that if they would just learn and be open to learning the nuances of the high-functioning autistics, the way it manifests for them, that... that kids would get a better shot at fairness. For um, parents of kids with autism, I mean, do they... Is this something where you would advocate for them to have somebody who is, um, I, I guess, kind of, for lack of a better term, um, in that mental health field? working for them on the outside? That's a great question. Absolutely. My recommendation to all families that have children with autism is that you should retain your own private people to advocate for you, to treat your children, and to advocate on your behalf. Um, and I know that finances are a big part of why people may not access those services, but there are wonderful not-for-profit services that could offer these advocates. And um, they do serve as a system of checks and balances with the school systems because these are the people that are trained in the nuances of autism. So I absolutely recommend all people to to retain that outside psychologist or clinical social worker or any, any sort of treatment your child needs. And then that, those private people should be collaborating with the school. And the whole idea of making schools inclusive, we, you know, we hear that mm-hmm. term at times mm-hmm. bandied about. What, 
should that mean for schools when it comes to how it is that they're responding to the needs of children with special needs? In other words, what should they be doing? Well, yes, in- inclusion of our uh, disabled kiddos is is now the way society uh, views their how they should be schooled. Mm-hmm. Um, but but <laughs> the big but is that even though they are being mainstreamed with neurotypical children, there still needs to be those. Um, allowances or needs to be um, things in place to handle um, the things that that are not typically known for the for the public school system so the the school systems need to continue to become more autism friendly and they're not there yet so yes, the the philosophy of inclusion or the philosophy of giving all children the least restricted environment to learn in still requires um, adaptations to the child. Uh, many school districts, in my experience, expect still expect the autistic child to adapt to to the systematic way the, the public school systems operate and. It doesn't work. The school systems still have a long way to go in becoming, in, in, in doing more adaptations to the autistic children that they teach. All right. There's something that um, I want to touch upon that's going to shift us away from this aspect of our discussion and to talk about something that's, relatively speaking, very timely because this is the extended July 4th weekend. Although, doesn't it seem like July 4th was actually like about a week or so ago? It was so long ago, <laughs> back when the fireworks were going off and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, you have a situation where a lot of people, the estimates were something like 4 million Americans were going to be hitting the roads uh, to travel this, this holiday weekend. Some of those folks may be listening to us today. And a lot of those people are either in the process of now or will be doing either later today or tomorrow, probably. Starting back home. Yes, the car ride home. Yes. (laughs) Um, I guess the open-ended question here is, does it have to be something that turns into a torturous experience? No, it doesn't. (laughs) Um, okay. So I have my three, I'm going to give you three steps that I think if they are integrated into people's cars, I think that it could be a more peaceful ride home. Okay. You are essentially trapped (laughs) while the car is in motion. Okay. I believe that family agreements should be made to not discuss hot topics. Okay, no problem, no big family problem is going to be solved on that car ride home. It just won't be. (laughs) So I think that there should not be, I think they should be identified, the family topics that are hot, and they should be avoided until you pull up in the driveway at home. I think you should set the rules of engagement. Um, 
this is not the time to teach our kids how to share. I think that this is <laughs> the time to make sure all of our kiddos have their their own electronics. I think there should be rules about the screen time. There should be um, uh, there should be rules, and then. I believe that there should be a code word. I use this with the families that I treat in my practice. When I do family therapy, I tell them to pick a code word that will make them smile. And in that smile, it'll give them the nanosecond to stop and think about whether they want to continue on with the argument. <laughs> Two Super Bowls ago, <laughs> do you remember Puppy Monkey Baby? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Many of my families made that their code word. Nice. And that would instantly bring smiles, and then they would not fight with each other. And then I would also say take plenty of breaks, stop the car, take your breaks, move your legs, and if all else fails, <laughs> turn up the music to loud enough to drown out the whining. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk about those um, devices, okay? Because this is one of the things that often comes up as um, concerns, shall I say, in families, okay? Because we live in an age where people are constantly connected or desiring to be connected. Uh, obviously, social media is huge. And you have generations who've grown up in a world where they just are connected. You know, they don't know a different approach. Having those devices in the car when you're having that eight, nine hour, or even four or six hour trip. How much of a plus can that be? I think it's the only way to go. <laughs> <laughs> I know with my son, with my Jesse, my Jesse, if we need to do a car ride, those are the things that, that keep him busy and, and uh, sort of stop some of the other annoyances you could be dealing with. So I do think that exceptions you know, can be made um, in terms of rules for, you know, electronics and social media. I think the car ride <laughs> could be one of those things. Although parents, be very aware. I find with my Jesse that if, he's, if we're driving and he stares down for too long <laughs> at his electronic, he throws up. <laughs> oh. So have them look up every now and again out the window. <laughs> Do you get concerned about... The overall amount of screen time? On a regular basis at home? Mm -hmm. I do. I do. But, um, look, as long as all other responsibilities are being met, then I do think it's okay. And specifically to our autistic kiddos, they they do see the electronics as a way to sort of escape a bit. And I do think that they need that because our, our autistic kiddos tend to push through the day doing what they think is appropriate. And that's, 
that's hard for them. So I do think that it's okay for them to come home and have some time where they don't have to be thinking about how they're acting or how they're communicating. And these electronics do help them with that. I mean, some of I, I do believe that some of our um, some of our uh, the, the people that spearhead our electronic companies and create these games and create social media probably have some brushstrokes of, of spectrum. So some wonderful things can happen. <laughs> also, it's not the end of the world. Most interesting discussion with our guest in um, this first hour of our program, Jennifer Bohr Cuevas, as I mentioned, is a licensed clinical social worker and uh, has worked as a uh, disaster mental health professional. Uh, she's talked with us and shared some information in uh, this discussion uh, today. I want to thank you for joining us on our program and sharing the kind of information that you have. Um, certainly, the information you've shared with us, I think, can be valuable to people who are listening to this discussion today. And it is very apparent, your love for your work. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome, and please say hi to, Je to Jesse for us. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Most interesting uh, guest in hour one of our program. We shift into a completely different discussion. As we move along after Mr. Minko's top of the hour update, that is next here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.